Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Jack Lapsley. I teach Old Testament, and I'm currently serving as the academic dean here at Princeton Seminary. And it's my pleasure uh, to welcome you this afternoon for uh, Princeton Seminary's Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. lecture. We are delighted to have Dr. Tamora Lomax deliver this afternoon's lecture. And I want to thank Reverend Kermit Moss, who I saw here a moment ago. Um, thank you. Uh, Reverend Kermit Moss, our Interim Director of Black Church Studies, I want to thank him and also the Association of Black Seminarians for selecting Dr. Lomax as this year's uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Lecturer. Dr. Lomax received her PhD in religion from Vanderbilt University. Her work there focused on black religious history and black diaspora studies. In 2011, Dr. Lomax co-founded The Feminist Wire, an online publication dedicated to feminist, anti-racist, and anti-imperialist socio-political critique. Dr. Lomax continues as The Feminist Wire's visionary and CEO. In 2018, Duke University Press published her most recent book, Jezebel Unhinged, Loosing the Black Female Body in Religion and Culture. This critically acclaimed work explores how black women and girls have been stereotyped as Jezebels in the black church and in popular black culture. Quote, healing the black church will require ceaseless refusal of the idea that sin resides in black women's bodies thus disentangling black women and girls from the Jezebel narrative's oppressive yoke. Dr. Lomax is currently at work on a new book to be published by Duke University Press entitled Parenting Against the Patriarchy, Raising Non-Toxic Sons in White Supremacist America. Her title for this afternoon's lecture is We Don't Need a Black Messiah, the Crisis of Civilization and Aspirational Black Patriarchy. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Tamora Lomax. Well, that was a very long clap. <laughs> One longer than I've experienced before. First and foremost, thank you um, so much to all of you for being here. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you to uh, my bestest friend for being here, um, uh, uh, coming off of sabbatical. Um, so I want to take some time tonight and labor through, and I'm going to tell you I am laboring through um, this work, I've been working uh, with this idea of the black messiah. And so I need you to uh, tr travel some deep and murky waters with me. So yes, the title is, we don't, we don't need a black messiah, the crisis of civilization and aspirational black patriarchy. In my latest book, Parenting Against the Patriarchy, Raising Non-Toxic Sons in White Supremacist America, I began by pouring my heart out 
in an open letter to my teenage sons, Michael and Martin, tears falls between each keystroke, particularly as I let them know that the primary genocidal threat that endangers all life is not black women, but rather white supremacist, capitalist, heteropatriarchal masculinity. Now, anyone who knows me knows that I am not much of a crier. That is, unless we are talking about Michael and Martin or their dad. But Michael, Michael and Martin have a particular tugging that they do on my heart. And so I'm moved to tears every time I reread the opening without fail. And not only because I'm talking to my children, a love between this black mother and those black boys, which knows no single boundary, but because I understand now more than ever how the vulnerabilities around being a black boy in America and eventually a black man will consistently beckon them to root their humanity not in the black feminist, beautiful black feminist politics that I raised them up in, but in a unrelenting push and pull between white, white supremacist heteropatriarchy in a remix of 1960s black messianic nationalism. And so I cry. I cry because I understand that the permanence of white supremacy in America is just as undeviating as racist oppression. And more because fighting against racial oppression for black folks has historically meant maintaining the simultaneous oppression of black women, girls, and queer kin. However, in her essay, Age, Race, Class, Sex, and Sex, Women Redefining Difference, Audre Lorde reminds us of the following. She says, the true focus of revolutionary change is never merely the oppressive situations which we seek to escape, but that piece of the oppressor that is within us and that shapes our relationships and practices. She continues, change means growth, and growth can be painful. And so tears flow. Because I know that in choosing the revolutionary act of raising my sons against the patriarchy, some will see that as a betrayal of the race. I also know, given its force, Michael and Martin may still claim pieces of the patriarchy from the, for, them, for themselves, despite my teachings. But most of all, I cry real tears because Lord serves as a reminder that the work of the critic painfully begins by looking in the mirror. Thus, after telling my sons all that is wrong with the patriarchy, the patriarchy, in my opening letter, I immediately turn to what is perhaps my most important and difficult chapter tentatively titled, Leaving the Patriarchy. And in, that and in that chapter, I begin with these words. I am a black feminist, and I am a recovering participant in the patriarchy. Sexism, as I understood it in my adolescence, was always bad. I learned this lesson early on from my mother. However, patriarchy for me was normalized 
And at some point in my childhood, I came to own it for myself. Of course, I know now that patriarchy and sexism are twin powers. But for many of us, at least in our minds, at least in my mind, they were separate. For example, I remember believing that men were supposed to be leaders. They were supposed to head households, organizations, institutions, and movements. And black men in particular were to be at the forefront, not only by design, but to right the wrongs of history. Specifically, my thinking was this, as long as black men led while being nice, fair, and respectful to women and girls, all else in the black world would not only be all right, but it would be as it should be. I learned this lesson from my father. To be clear, my father is one of the greatest men I've ever known. He taught me to burst through glass ceilings, however, while also tutoring me on the lesson that real black men lead. One way to look, up, look at this is through the lens of patriarchy. However, another lens that we must take into account is the psychohistory <clears throat> that interpreted black men as primitive and emasculated and thus not real men. For it wasn't long ago that the men of daddy's generation held handmade signs exclaiming, I am a man, or that those before him were denied the right to establish patronymics, bloodlines, and entitlements. And so truth be told, I love daddy's leadership. In fact, I, be, I benefited greatly from it. His towering presence offered meaning in the midst of chaos and made me feel seen, human, and whole. My mother provided that too. But patriarchy makes it so us little girls only see that which our daddies do. But though my parents never explicitly enforced the patriarchy in our household, by the time I was a teenager, it was second nature to me. So in short, as a teenager, I was a race girl, not a feminist. And Martin Luther King and Malcolm X next to daddy were my first loves. They were savior-like figures for the race and represented models of black masculinity worth duplicating again and again and again and again. However, King in particular reminded me of my father. In fact, I grew up in a conservative Christian household that in many ways resembled that of kings. My father was a fiery black Baptist preacher turned theologian and my mother a beautiful homemaker. And like King and many others, I learned early, even if perhaps unintentionally so, to not only respect the voice, role, and call of black men, but to worship them. And more, to aid and abet in the necessity of a black Messiah. To be sure, daddy was our messiah at home. But King, he was the messiah to the black masses. When writing this lecture, I was reminded of the black church fans. Anybody remember those black church fans? It's very interesting. I was reminded of the black church fans that meticulously placed, they were meticulously, meticulously placed throughout my grandmother's uh, apartment in the projects of the Bronx, New York, when I was a little girl. You've likely seen them, most of you have seen the ones that I'm going to talk about. 
They typically have, of course, funeral arrangements on the back. But on the front, they often have, particularly when I was growing up, white Jesus and black king. And what I remember most is that my grandmother juxtaposed those images on her walls. She had all kinds of fans. And it's in the projects of the Bronx. So if you've been to the Bronx, you know that there's no air condition in the summer. The fan is your air. And so we'd have those fans. They'd be on the wall. You could pull them down. They, they were everywhere, but always white Jesus, black king. And I always wonder, what is grandma trying to communicate by this image of white Jesus and black king? What did this proximity mean? It was as if one was the first coming and the other had been the next. And my grandmother was not alone. White Jesus and the adjacent black king was evidence in many black households and churches of my youth. Ella Baker argued that King personified the black messianic leadership trope for the 1960s civil rights movement, thus informing multiple generations of black religious and political leadership. Now I should pause here because um, in giving and talking about the Black Messiah recently, I realized that there was a bit of confusion. So I want to pause here and be very clear that when I talk about the Black Messiah, I am not talking about Jacqueline Grant's and James Cone's Black Jesus. What I'm referring to is the paragon for aspirational Black patriarchy. <laughs> The one that black feminists like Ella Baker, Michelle Wallace, Tony K. Bambara, Bell Hooks, and many others warned us about in black communities, social movements, and churches. And so I also want to be clear that when I talk about the black messiah, I am also not um, coming down or trashing black men and boys. I am, however, offering an unapologetic critique of the concerted efforts to make a blackened form of patriarchy. And not only a blackened form of patriarchy, but to make it so that the blackened form of patriarchy is our only option for survival, our only option for thriving, and our only option for seeing humanity. Or more specifically, what I'm critiquing is the concerted effort to make King's manhood in particular, and his messianic leadership, the definitive and descriptive descriptive example for proper masculinity and leadership. But most of all, what I'm trying to say is that we don't need a black messiah. <laughs> what we need is a revolution of values. And such a revolution, I want to argue tonight, requires the specific task of demythologizing the symbols of civilization and patriarchy. First and foremost, so that they may no longer possess ontological prestige. But second, so that little girls like me don't grow up normalizing patriarchy or believing it has a capacity to be nice and or fair. And third, and perhaps most importantly, so that we may free up little boys like Michael and Martin and your boys from the crushing weight of thinking they have to man up into superheroic super tropes charged with saving the race. This in mind, going forward, I want to make four brief moves. I think they're brief. 
<laughs> First, I will engage what we still have yet to learn from King. Second, I will explore some of Baker's and other black feminist critiques of King, the black church, and the 1960s social movement, movement, and thus what King and others could have learned from them. Third, I will turn to Charles Long, Horton Spillers, and Sadia Hartman to explore the role of civilization and patriarchy in the making of the Black Messiah. And then finally, I will turn towards a question I've been wrestling with for months, and that is, what if Martin Luther King Jr. had listened to Ella Baker? In a speech delivered at, River, at the Riverside Church in 1967, why am, I why am I opposed to the war in Vietnam? King argued for a revolution of values that would soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth with righteous indignation. Many black feminists have argued that King's turn towards a critique of capitalism highlighted his potential for one day adding a critique of sexism and patriarchy to his repertoire. Such a suggestion makes sense particularly when thinking about the work that Dr. Carrie Day does in her book, Unfinished Business, Black Women, the Black Church, and the Struggle to Thrive in America, when she asserts the necessity of centering black poor women in discourses and movements engaged in critiques of economic alienation and, justice, and injustice. Personally, I like to believe that King, had he lived long enough, he may have listened to women like Dr. Day, as well as his contemporary and dare I say his mentor, Ella Baker. Notwithstanding, the truth is King, whose life was cut short by the bullet of an assassin, had in fact not made it there yet. Though his thinking had had a head start, his lived, and sex, his lived sex and gender politics were often far behind. But yet it is the distance between King's head start and our present reality that still gives me a little bit of hope. Because King, even on his worst day, was in some ways, not all, but some ways still leap years ahead of most of us. Take for instance his beloved community where Agape served as not only a methodology for enacting social change, but an ethics for radical black radical liberation, and more his idea that his ideas that black folks are sacred somebodies with inherent dignity and worth, and that black love is liberative and just. These are the radical ideas of Dr. King that we have not yet lived into. King maintained power at his best is love, implementing the demands of, implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. What a lesson. Who would we be if we had take up, taken up King's lessons? Who would King be if he had lived up to his lessons? Because simultaneously to teaching these wonderful, or imagining, envisioning these wonderful lessons, According to Baker and others, King's deep sense of community was flawed. For example, though King often said Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth, 
were the forerunners of the civil rights movement and that women were just as smart as men? In an oral interview with Eugene Walker in 1974, Baker reminds us that he ultimately thought women's place was better served in domestic roles. She posits that though King and others drafted her to set up the initial Southern Christian leadership, uh, also the SCLC office, given her previous experience with political activism, which began in Harlem in the 1930s, not only did they not give her an office space, they didn't see any significance in her role. Baker, who mentored the SCLC ministers on direct action, says the assumption was that she was there to carry out the orders from King and the other leaders, despite their lack of experience and understanding around movement needs. In fact, she posits that she was given, the, she was given no designation of authority, and there was no conscious effort to provide input from a woman. Baker asserts the SCLC's attitudes towards women was that they were nice to talk to about how well they cooked particularly, or how beautifully they looked, or how well they carried out one of the minister's programs. But they would not tolerate one who was independent and whose creative ideas upon which they had to rely. She refers to this as the Baptist hierarchy, noting how the SCLC was ultimately run like a black church, with King at the top, and then the other prominent ministers, depending on the size of their congregation, next. <laughs> Mind you, she had 30 years of experience that she mentored them on. It's amazing. She said, in this model, women were to be secretaries, fashion plates, or useful in terms of male-female interest, not in terms of their knowledge. In her essay, Living Out Loud, Martin Luther King revisited a black power feminist pays homage to the king. Gwendolyn Simmons writes the following. It is ironic that both the SCLC and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC, owe their founding and early development to Miss Ella Baker, that brilliant trailblazer, strategist, and builder of local leaders, the fundi who was the midwife at, S at, at SNCC's birth, who had also been the birth attendant at the founding of the SCLC and its first staff person. A fact known only to movement insiders and historians, it is not an over-exaggeration to say that ba Baker did more than anyone else to create the two most important movements of the civil rights era. Simmons continues, Baker and King's relationship was, uneasy, was an uneasy one at best, even though she worked her heart out to get that organization moving and able to carry out its civil rights agenda. The relationship between King and Baker provides several clues about the relationships between black women and men and not only social movements, but as Baker notes, the black church. Specifically, it notes the push and pull between Baker, between black patriarchy, or in this case, a black messiah, and the demand for a submissive and ultimately invisible black feminine ideal. In her 1970 anthology, The Black Woman, Tony K. Bambara wrote the following. 
When a few tough-minded, no messing around political sisters began pushing for the right to participate in policymaking, the right to help compose position papers for the emerging organization, the group leader would drop his voice into that mellow register specifically reserved for the incontinent and say something about the need to be feminine, quiet, and supportive, and blah, blah, blah. Nine years later, in her book, Black Macho and the Myth of the Superwoman, Michelle Wallace argues that the 1960s black political movements propagated a vicious view of black women as emasculating, aggressive, and unnaturally independent. These kinds of representations and beliefs enabled movement leaders and others to ignore black feminist challenges to their political agendas and to suppress black women's ideas and ambitions for political leadership thus limiting the scope, ultimately, and the success of the movement. Simultaneously, in an effort to avoid, to avoid tropes of angry, domineering, and unfeminine womanhood, black women were discouraged from demanding equal consideration for their social, political, and economic needs within black political discourse and movements. Ultimately, black women's legitimate frustrations with their unequal circumstances and treatment were seen as irrational, pathological, controlling, and out of natural order. I find Charles Long's signification, signs, symbols, and images in an interpretation of religion, Horton Spiller's Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, an American grammar book, and Sadia Hartman's Lose Your Mother, a journey along the Atlantic slave route, particularly insightful here. A critical reading of these power dynamics highlight not only the blatant and prevalent sexism and heteropatriarchy between black social movements and the black church, but their rootedness and Western symbols of civilization. More, such dynamics underline how the grasping of Western symbols also serve as a source of resistance to the colonial situation and the primitive othering that happened during that time. That is, King and others could preach beloved community while disempowering the members of that community because the political project of becoming rational and real men and thus undoing the demonic deeds of history became not, not the only but the primary initial goal for black freedom. Long posits that Western ideological biases in, invoked a structure of civilized primitive dialectics, with the West presupposing itself as the locus of intelligence, while projecting onto the Africans, along with their cultures and religions, innate savagery, inferiority, immorality, pathology, and, irrational, and irrationality. He refers to this as the crisis of civilization, specifically the burden of being made over into primitive others under the white gaze, and more, the ceaseless attempt by black folks to prove their humanity, rationality, order, and morality. Yet, though black communal, religious, and political responses to these projections were many, they also included appropriations of Western biases specifically hegemonic gender ideologies, sexual politics, and Puritan ideals in which the black church and the black nuclear family project 
played, especially, played in especially significant roles. As I write in Jezebel Unhinged, after North American slavery, the symbol of the black heteropatriarchal family became not only a signifier of Western civilization and natural order, but a civic and moral duty for establishing intercommunal, institutional, and organizational hierarchy, roles, and thusly real black manhood. And Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, Spillers asserts that the degendering and sexual assault of captured fathers denied them the right to know, parent, raise, protect, or name their children. That is, while the name of the father established property, captive fathers were property. Spillers argues that masculinity constituted through the African father's banished name and body, and the captive, captive father's mocking presence, hence Papa's maybe, led to enslaved children and their heirs having dis a distinctive relationship to the patriarchal model on one hand and a crisis of identity on the other. Concurrently, the patronymic, right, the familial line through the father's name, was ultimately an empty category for the enslaved. The heritage of the mother both claimed and denied personhood, hence mama's baby. The point here is not to establish a matriarchy or the significance of a matriarchy, as the enslaved mother could not claim her child. It is to know, as Spillers writes, the African-American male has been touched by the mother, handed by her in ways that he cannot escape, and in ways that the white American male is allowed to temporize with a fatherly reprieve. That is, black male identity was not only dependent on the recognition of the mother, but it was imprinted by her, and thus the feminine, and in ways he could not engage, evade. But though the latter, femininity, is a social construct, what Spillers is getting at here is not uh, a notion of black male feminization but rather a hopefulness that there is something within black men and boys to help them recognize and love black women and girls rather than further othering or marginalizing them. But what I'd like to note, however, is how the absence of the patronymic, along with the inescapable presence of the mother's touch and the denial of personhood through the maternal line are in fact foundational to not only certain performances of black masculinity, but to tensions and subordinations between genders and sexualities. This is particularly interesting to think about in terms of the work Hartman does in Lose Your Mother. If Spillers is right, it seems to me that the touch of the mother came to serve as a site of resentment. This may be particularly so as the touch conflicts with the patriarchal project, the latter of which is a primary lens through which black liberation efforts have been imagined. Thus, it should make sense why it has been a political priority to establish real manhood, however, while making other needs within the black collective body unimportant, irrational, or pathological. Hartman asserts the slave trade forced slaves to lose their mother, or more specifically to lose their country, 
kinships, ancestors, identities, and history. Meaning, to lose your mother was to become an orphan in transaction in the market which established which persons would be expendable and which would not. Concomitantly, however, it was the market that determined that the stamp of commodity would haunt the maternal line. Thusly, in freedom, establishing gender roles, patriarchy, and patronymics became aspirational. In the matriarchate, mother-led homes were seen as deficient and for some delinquent. Robert E. Park, Patrick Moynihan, E. Franklin Frazier, and others dominated the literature on the black family and freedom, noting how, noting how it was weakened during slavery <clears throat> because of the absence of the black father. They argued that the family, the black family, when I say the, I mean that they had a very specific idea. It's the church fan family, right? Daddy up here, mama. They're not talking about all the ways that black people have made families, but the black family produced, when the father was not present, it produced weak males. <clears throat> and so these sources, though anti-black and heterosexist, tell us something about the perpetual quest to establish not merely black fathers. Black fathers are significant parts of the collective black communities. So no, they don't establish anything about that. But what they establish is, or they help us to think about, is this desire to create a certain kind of messianic, all-powerful, strong black man and black communities. But it also tells us why when we see other models of masculinity, folks lose their minds. In short, Long, Spillers, and Hartman, Hartman presents an opportunity for us to explore not only the seduction of patriarchy in, in the Western project, but the particular loss of the mother, and specifically the displacement of black women and ultimately the feminine post-slavery. Whereas the mother serves as a reminder of the colonial situation and its projections <clears throat> of irrationality, otherness, primitivity, weakness, and inferiority, accessing the patriarchal most of all, or ultimately, the messianic, suggests transcendence and moral order. The permanence of sexist oppression in black families, communities, political movements, and churches requires going through these layers and demythologizing this framework. More, it requires not only going back and getting our mothers and all others on the margins of black social movement, but reimagining the latter not in terms of resurrecting a new black messiah, but instead in terms of black feminist politics, or more in terms of what Baker had already taught us. Namely, and again, that we don't need a black messiah. More that black social movements require we start from the margins, thus making room for all the different ways of being, knowing, living, and working together. And also, that the legitimacy and relevance of the Black Freedom Project rests not in a black messiah, but rather in our collective breaking up of the oppressive world that we inherited. Had King only listened. Had King only listened to Ella Baker, he would have known this. 
he would have realized that strong movements don't need strong leaders, and that Baker's notion of power to the people was in fact in line with his radical vision of love, power, and justice when at their best. He would have also discerned that the Baptist hierarchy contradicted his beloved community and also his personalism, and that the black church's trappings and male-centric pastoral and social visions of leadership require immediate critique and deconstruction. Finally, he would have discovered that revolutionary change must begin within the painful work of ridding ourselves of the oppressor's tactics and relationships. To this end, Baker might have registered in his mind as a potential mentor rather than a glorified yet emasculating secretary. And more, the women of the movement could have possibly been seen as more than order takers, cooks, and or fashion place or people to have relationships with. <clears throat> yet even with all of that notwithstanding, there is still something for us to learn from King, but only if we read him through the black feminist lens of Ella Baker. And not because we need to swap a king for a queen. I don't do those kinds of politics. <laughs> but rather because Baker is the embodiment of the collective hand of the mother, but more because she is sacred recognition. She is King's beloved community. And most of all, she personifies a revolution of values. Thank you. <laughs>